everyone and welcome to another episode of In the Reading Corner. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Peter Brown, who's joining me from Salt Lake City in Utah. Our listeners will know Peter's work very well. Uh, Mr. Tiger Goes Wild is a huge favourite in UK classrooms, as is My Teacher is a Monster. And of course, the Wild Robot books. So to date, we've had two, uh, The Wild Robot and The Wild Robot Escapes. And these have created a huge fan base for Roz the Robot, who holds a special place in our hearts. And the third book is The Wild Robot Protects. And here to help me delve a little bit deeper into that story, I'd really like to welcome author and illustrator Peter Brown. Before we get on to the the most recent book, I'd just like to set it up a little bit by talking about The Wild Robot herself. And the thing that you've done with these stories is that you have juxtaposed what we don't normally expect to see side by side, nature alongside technology. And these are often presented as diametrically opposite. Yeah, you nailed it. That was what was so intriguing to me, was to take these two concepts that seem at odds with each other or almost like opposites. I spent a lot of time talking to kids about these books, and I described these things as like a robot seems like a pretty unnatural thing. And so you take it and you put it in perhaps the most natural place you could imagine, like in a wild forest on an island in the ocean. They seem so out of place, but those fish out of water stories have always really been appealing to me. And this one was especially interesting because it allowed me to explore so many of my favorite subjects, technology, science. I'm really fascinated by animals and by wildlife and by the wilderness and by the idea of wildness, both in characters and in ourselves. I think a lot of times we forget that human beings are technically animals and we have some animal instincts in there at certain times they show themselves and little kids especially i feel like can really relate to animals because they're crawling and squawking and climbing on things and so this story really was just a dream come true for me because i got to combine all of my favorite subjects and explore them in really interesting ways and find obvious differences but also some pretty surprising similarities between technology and the natural world. There's so much in what you've said that I want to come back to and dig a little deeper. But the first one is about humans and wildness, because I think some of the most exhilarating experiences that we have as human beings are when we allow ourselves to go a little bit wild. How do you like to get in touch with the wild side of yourself? Oh, it's funny. I think a lot of us really struggle with this subject and grapple with it because we're brought up in a society where we're told constantly to control ourselves. And it can be hard to let loose, even if you really want to. We've trained ourselves to be buttoned up and it's not easy to do. But I find that getting myself into a wild environment really helps me feel in touch with that side of me. I'm never happier than going out in for a hike in nature. Fresh air, beautiful landscapes. Hopefully you see some wild animals. And that's enough for me to really feel at peace. I suppose there are dangers out there and a hike out in the wilderness can turn dangerous if you're not careful. Fortunately, I haven't had too many bad experiences. I've gone so far as to leave city living behind. I've lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in New York City. I've lived in Philadelphia. I spent six months in London. (laughs) And now I live in a house in the woods. 
And I'm really happy there because every day I get to go outside and breathe fresh air and walk through the woods. That edge of danger, I think, is an important part of it. For me, wildness is wild weather. I love storms. And I think it's about seeing something that is bigger than yourself. Your robot, Roz, in her design, is to some extent what we've come to expect uh, a robot to look like. There's no reason that a robot couldn't look more natural, but we recognise her almost as an iconic robot. Tell me a little bit about you designing the look of her. Yeah, that was very intentional. I studied illustration I've worked in animation. I illustrate children's books. I'm perfectly capable of designing and illustrating a much more complicated robot. I decided to keep Roz's design simple because what I was really playing with were people's expectations. I wanted people to immediately recognize what they were looking at. They're looking at a a robot in a place you would not expect to find a robot. On the cover, we see Roz standing on these rocks on this sort of rocky coastline with these forest scenes behind her. And so I wanted to immediately tell the reader I'm taking something you think you know, a very kind of ordinary looking robot, and I'm immediately telling you it's going to be in a place that you're not expecting to see a robot. That was important to me. And so I needed Roz to be stereotypical in a way, because then I was going to spend the rest of the story kind of tearing down that stereotype. She starts off acting robotic, how we might expect, and gradually, I slowly walk the reader through this progression of watching Roz turn wilder and wilder, learn from the animals, learn from the environment, change her behavior, change the way she speaks, learn to communicate with the animals, learn to not clean herself, let herself get dirty, let herself become almost camouflaged to blend into the environment. And we see her become almost more natural and wild than a person ever could. And the reason that's exciting is because she starts off so far from that. And it's interesting because the notion of wildness in science fiction that deals with robots is not a new idea, but usually wildness means going rogue. I love science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction. I watch sci-fi movies and TV shows and all that stuff. But you're right. We've come to expect robots to rise up (laughs) against humans. That's a pretty familiar trope. And I didn't want to go down that path. We know that story, and we've seen it a million times. I think in the back of our minds, a lot of us have a little anxiety about what the future of technology is going to be like. We're not quite sure where artificial intelligence is headed. We're not quite sure where robotics is headed, or even the internet, or social media. All these things are a little scary at times, and I understand that, but I thought, it doesn't have to be that way. We could choose to go down a different path, and I think it's possible that robots could genuinely be a force for good in the world. And so I've created this character to explore how that might unfold. The opposite of the robots rising up, it's a robot actually rising up in a way that I wish more people would do by taking responsibility for things and being kind no matter the situation. In your head, is she programmed with that kindness or does she learn that kindness? In my head, she's programmed to be a very versatile robot. She might be a asked to do farming. She might be asked to do babysitting. She might ask to perform surgery. She's capable of doing all sorts of things. And so she's got this kind of down the middle personality. She's very kind of neutral, but capable of learning all sorts of complicated things with the idea that she's always in service to humanity. And so she's got to be able to interact with people, have a pleasant personality. That's where she starts. And then from there, she learns all these unexpected lessons out there in the wildest, which reinforce the idea to her that kindness is like a survival skill, right? She's struggling to survive in the beginning of the story. And she realizes that if she's 
good to the animals around her, they will eventually return the favor and help her survive for longer. Not only is kindness its own reward, but it's also a survival strategy. I'm interested because one of the things that people say is the difference between artificial intelligence and humans is that humans and and animals have the capacity for emotion, but Ros isn't emotionless. You use words like worried when you describe her, so worry is an emotion. Yeah, I dance around this subject a little bit in the story by using phrases like, she felt something like curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying she genuinely feels the same sense of curiosity that a human might feel, but she feels her version of that emotion, which if you want to go down the rabbit hole far enough, it could be just a bunch of ones and zeros and her sort of binary programming that come together to create in her own way, something like curiosity. I really focus on her actions. She behaves kind and she behaves concerned and worried and all these things. Whether or not she's experiencing those feelings the way we would, I think probably she is not. But she understands the effects that her behavior would have on those around her. And so she's acting in a way to let the characters know that she cares about them, to let them know that she's worried about them. It's an interesting subject. And I do think that she changes and adapts and evolves and maybe develops a bit more emotionality than you would expect. But I also think that there's a lot more at play in there. And she's doing a lot of performance for good reason. I love this subject because at first you might think, well, if she's just pretending to care, well, that seems wrong. That seems strange. I don't want a character who pretends to care. I want a character who genuinely cares. To which I say, I don't know if it really matters. Because if she chooses time and again to show kindness, to show curiosity, to show empathy and generosity, if she makes that decision over and over again, then maybe she really does feel something like those emotions. But with humans, I'm guessing those emotions are just electrical impulses. Anyway. Exactly. (laughs) And this is where the sort of surprising similarities come into play between the natural world and the sort of robot world, right? Is we're all programmed in a way, our own instincts in a way are like computer programs. So many animals do so many things in predictable ways because of their instinct. Now, we know certain birds will fly south for winter. We know they'll group together in, in packs or in, or in herds. They have a lot of predictable behaviors, and I'm not convinced that they're all super conscious about what they're doing. Once again, I find myself <laughs> seeing these pretty interesting similarities in between these things that seem so different from each other. What a nice segue, programmed animal behavior, because at the beginning of the a wild robot protects we have the geese coming back it's a fantastic example of what must be programmed behavior yeah. and how they manage to go back to their homes and for one thing i love to hear the sound of geese flying it's yeah. so magical i live in a state called maine which is in the northeasternmost state in the united states about near canada and we get a ton of migratory birds including a lot of geese in the fall and spring And it is really wonderful to just hear them coming and going and flying over and looking up the window and seeing them flying by. I knew I would enjoy it, but the satisfaction that I feel from hearing and seeing birds passing by and wondering about the kinds of adventures that they've had and wondering what they've seen on their journeys. And it's really been a a really delightful part of our new lifestyle up there in the woods. (laughs) Anyway, we've got to tell people about the world a robot protects. So Perhaps just start us off in your words to explain basic outline of the story without giving too much of it away. (laughs) Yeah, so the first book, The Wild Robot, 
was about Roz, the robot, kind of making herself a home in this wilderness on this island. The second book, The Wild Robot Escapes, is about Roz trying to find her way back to her home after she's been taken away for reasons I, I won't get into at the end of the first book. And this third book is about Roz trying to protect her home. I started realizing just how much home was an important concept to all of these stories. I wanted to imagine Roz feeling a sense of protectiveness over this place, but protect it from what? I started thinking about the kinds of dangers that would maybe come to an island. I started thinking about different kinds of pollution. A lot of trash finds its way into the, or rubbish, as you might say, finds its way into the ocean. And, and oftentimes it'll gather together in these giant clusters and clumps of trash floating in the ocean. I thought about stuff like oil spills. Big tanker ships sometimes have accidents and oil spills, and it can travel for miles and do a lot of damage on coastlines. And, and there's even more naturally occurring dangers that could possibly come to an island. There's a, a thing called like a red tide, which is algae that can grow and be really toxic and really spread far and wide and do a lot of damage. And so I invented this mysterious form of pollution, which the animals in the story call the poison tide. So the story is about this poison tide flowing through the ocean, coming to the island, flowing past the island and surrounding the island, and really doing a ton of damage around the coastline and the interior as well. One of the big parts of the story that I wanted to emphasize was just how connected everything is. You know, just because there's problems in the ocean doesn't mean those problems aren't going to show themselves on land or even in the sky. And so Roz was watching as her home island is gradually deteriorating. And so she takes it upon herself to figure out how to solve this problem. And she goes on this long journey to the far north into what is basically the Arctic Ocean, to the source of the poison tide in an effort to figure out what it is, what's causing it, and how to stop it. And along the way, she has this incredible journey where she meets all sorts of interesting animals that you would find in the north, animals like puffins, like walruses. She encounters a really interesting octopus. A friend of mine who's actually a science journalist read this book, and she described it as a hero's journey for a female robot. The fact that it is this mysterious poison tide, and the fact that she's searching for the ancient shark, and we know that Greenland sharks, for instance, they have incredible long lifespans. Yep. So you've got this kind of almost mythic sense going searching for the ancient wisdom that can yeah. uh, help to put this right. Well, you're right about the Greenland shark. I, I was thinking about the different kinds of animals that Roz might encounter. I was aware a few years ago, there was a news story that came out about how some scientists discovered a Greenland shark that they estimated to be about 500 years old. And I started thinking, imagine what that shark has seen. Imagine the changes it's experienced from the ocean temperature rising to the ice caps melting, there being less ice under which it can hide and swim and hunt. Just imagine the kinds of ships it's seen, the, the evolution of shipping industry from old wooden sailboats to modern day submarines. A 500-year-old shark would have witnessed a really incredible slice of human technological history. And so that character became really important to the story for all those interesting reasons. But I also like the idea that because the shark was so old, she would have a sort of a mythical reputation and animals have heard of her throughout the North, throughout the ocean, maybe across the whole world. And they have a certain respect for this character. And so the shark ends up being a leader of the ocean animals. And she thinks that this is the time has come. There's a line that the humans have crossed and 
the shark decides that she wants to take revenge. And so then Roz, of course, finds herself in this awkward position of trying to prevent this battle from happening, but also wanting to stop the poison tide. And so once again, in all the stories, Roz faces incredible moral dilemmas. And to me, that's interesting. And I love that kids are so excited about these stories because they're excited about the difficult parts of life. It's not black and white. There's no villain. And yet there's a lot of tension. Her first night in the ocean where she sees the micro creatures and the bioluminescence coming up from the deep. I absolutely love that scene. I could visualize it. Yeah. So there's a term for that. There's this vertical migration. We're familiar with migrating animals like geese and maybe different kinds of deer, elk in in Africa. Wildebeest go on these great migrations. But the greatest migrations of all (laughs) actually turn out to be in the ocean. And they oftentimes involve the smallest animals imaginable, these bioluminescent little creatures. Every night they rise to the surface and every day they sink back into the depths trillions, probably quadrillions, who knows how many of these creatures are doing this all the time. And most of us aren't really aware of it, but it's totally fascinating to me. And I wanted to introduce that idea to readers and to Roz. Roz's brain is filled with all sorts of information. And maybe back there somewhere, she's aware of this vertical migration that happens, but she's never seen it before. And so it's it's, it's exhilarating for her as well to see this phenomenon with her own two eyes. That's what I find interesting because I feel she's experiencing a sense of wonder rather than just collecting information. I think something else that comes across and which resonates with the world that we're living in, and that is that People don't seem so keen to do anything about it if it doesn't impact their lives. And some of the the land animals say, well, you know, I live on the land, so it's fine. It doesn't impact me. Yeah, nothing frustrates me more than people who can't appreciate a problem until it directly affects them. The truth of the matter is I don't actually blame people for not taking action because these problems are so huge that as far as I'm concerned, this is really what government is for. But people can encourage their government to take that kind of action. But ultimately, these aren't problems we can solve by recycling our soda cans. These are too big. And we have to work together. The countries of the world have to find a way to take this stuff seriously. And so you see that on a smaller scale in the story. Animals who are falling into that same kind of pattern of not really caring because it doesn't affect them directly without realizing that eventually it will direct them. And by that time, it could be too late and there might be nothing they can do. And so you're better off taking action early. Roz knows this, of course, and she sees the writing on the wall. She's not going to wait around for things to get worse and worse. She takes off as soon as she can. Quite a lot of science fiction, technology can be the enemy, but technology is going to be the solution to whatever happens to get us out of this situation. People can't do it on their own. There needs to be that innovation and scientific solution. Well, yeah, and I'm trying to create a world in these stories where technology is really just carrying out the wishes of the humans in control of that technology. The robots can be used for good. Roz is a robot, and she's obviously doing all sorts of good things out there. And there's no reason all the other robots couldn't do the same. They're following orders. Ultimately, the responsibility falls on humanity to make the decisions of how they want to use their technology. And oftentimes, in these stories anyway, humanity like in the real world, is a little distracted by all the other things in their lives, and they're not focused on the things that Roz is focused on. And it takes this robot, this wild robot, to bring things to their attention, at which point, maybe, hopefully, 
they they take these issues more seriously and then direct their robots to do the right thing. Without saying too much about the ending, at one point she calls the humans robotic. She said, you just follow orders, you're more robotic than I am. You're dealing with other issues too about the impact, for instance, on the movement of people. I meant that the movement of animals in this case, and we have the sea otters who come and want to inhabit the spaces that the beavers think belong to them. And the beavers actually want them to go to these new kind of less attractive ponds that have been dug out to store the water. I was absolutely thinking about environmental refugees when I was thinking about those scenes. And it's only going to get worse in, in reality. As the climate crisis worsens, more people are going to be displaced. And you're going to have more of these culture clashes where folks from one area move someplace else out of desperation. And the people who live in that other place don't necessarily want them there. And this has happened since the beginning of time, but it's going to happen more and more. And we better be ready because it's nobody's fault. It's certainly not the people being displaced, it's not their fault. And yet they're going to be really facing some unpleasant circumstances. It's all based in real life. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the writing of these books then, because they're very distinctive and in style. They're, they're very pared back, uh, very economical short chapters, incredibly short chapters. Was this about making the story accessible? I love this question. It's actually a combination of things. Before I wrote the first Wild Robot novel, I had written and illustrated quite a few picture books. And so I was comfortable with the picture book text. Picture book texts are a couple hundred words. And that was comfortable for me. And then I started working on this novel, this big story. And I was really scared because I had never done anything like it before. And I had this idea about this wild robot that I was really excited about. I was nervous that I was going to let down the story by not being able to write it well enough. And so I decided to really make things simple. I decided I'm not going to try to be poetic. I'm not going to try to like be flowery with my language. I'm going to write really directly, get to the point and move on. And so part of that was short chapters. Each chapter was like about the size of a text for a picture book. I can write a picture book text. So suddenly I'm not quite as intimidated because I've done this before. So I start writing these short chapters and that really worked for me creatively, but it also helped me to focus my energy because every chapter had a purpose. Now, before I started writing, I had an outline of all these little moments that needed to happen in my story. And each of those moments I turned into its own chapter. So the first book has 80 chapters because my outline had 80 plot points on it. And that helped me organize my thoughts, helped me get to the point, helped me keep the pacing nice and crisp because I'm not getting bogged down in unnecessary details and all that. But there was another thought in my mind while I was writing these things, which is that when I was a kid, I actually had a little trouble reading. I really struggled to visualize the stories I was reading. And if I couldn't see it in my imagination, I couldn't follow the story. And I was a decent student, but I struggled in this regard because... So many of the tests I would take were read an essay and then write your answers about the essay. And I would read that essay and I, it would go r- right through my head and I wouldn't be able to comprehend really what I was reading and, and make sense of it and then answer questions properly. And I was thinking about that and how as a young person, I didn't read a whole lot because I didn't think I was good at I was slow. And I thought being a slow reader meant being a bad reader. Now, those kinds of th- thoughts were in my mind. And I thought if I was a kid reading The Wild Robot, I would want there to be short, direct chapters, really concise language. I would want it to get to the point. I would want the words to tell a story in a visual way that I could see in my own mind as I'm reading the words. And so I really wrote this story in a lot of ways for young readers who are like me. 
And one of the biggest compliments I get from kids who read this book is how clearly they can see what's happening in the story. Paired back writing can be incredibly poetic. There's a chapter called Observations, and it's just single lines. I mean, that's a poem. You're right. As soon as those words left my mouth, I thought to myself, well, maybe that wasn't quite the right way to phrase it. Because you're right. In the first book, had basically a poem. I think it was called The Observations. And it was just like 11 or 12 lines just describing different things that were happening on the island, each line its own little moment in, in the island's life. And I love that chapter so much. You know, it doesn't advance the story a whole lot, but it just captures the feeling of being in that place. And I loved it so much that I decided to do that in every book. And so The Wild Robot Escapes actually has two chapters like that. One in the first half of the story when Roz is on a farm, and one in the second half of the story when she's traveling through civilization, through towns and cities and stuff. And then again, I do it in The Wild Robot Protects because here she is in this ocean and there's all these new kinds of things to see and hear and smell. And I just, I love the idea that we just take a little moment to appreciate all of these different things that were going on around her. Tell me a little bit about the voice that you write in, because it's what I would call technically the transferred storyteller voice, Mm -hmm. as in every now and then you remind us that you're telling us a story and that there's a reader there and you speak to uh, the reader. When I was working on the first book, The Wild Robot, I was really nervous about having a main character who was a robot. I was worried that readers would have a hard time caring about a robot. I was like, man, this is a lot to ask of young readers. And I thought, how can I make sure as best I can that they're really going to care about this character? And I tried every trick I could think of. And one of them was having the narrator be a comforting voice and be there, especially during some of the more difficult scenes. There's some battle scenes at the end of the first book. There's some uncomfortable moments with Roz and Bright Bill when they discover all these dead robots on the coast of the island in the first book. And they talk about death and life and all this stuff. And I was like, those are heavy subjects. And I thought, you know, if the narrator is there, talking to the reader, holding their hand through some of these moments, I just thought that might be another little way that I could help readers through those tough moments, but also help them just care about all the things that are happening and care about the characters. And so once I started experimenting with that, it just felt so charming. It just felt felt so comforting that I pretty quickly realized that I was onto something. And so that became part of the style of the writing. And and the truth is I'm the narrator, right? I And I care about the readers. I, I'm introducing them to a lot of interesting ideas. Some of them will be new to them. Some of them will be hard for them. I hear from a lot of families who parents who have adopted kids. And they talk to me about how these books have really helped them talk to their adopted kids about their family and what it all means. And they can look to Roz and Brightbill and kind of point to some of their experiences and, and say, we've gone through stuff like that too. You know, like this, these stories get surprisingly emotional and different people, for, for certain people in particular, it really strikes an emotional chord. And so I want them to know me, the narrator, like we're here too. We're right there with you. So we can have a look at some of the pictures and talk about illustrating um, a novel, which is very different to your picture book. Let's talk about the title page. I want to say a couple of things about the title page that will apply to a bunch of the illustration. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about these new environments that we're seeing in the new book was the lighting, right? The way that light filters through water in, say, like a kelp forest. It's beautiful, just the way that it fades from light to dark, the way that certain streaks of light shine down through the leaves and the foliage of the kelp. I just thought that was magical. So the artist and the, uh, the other books, is, is quite flat, quite simple. But because the ocean 
has this sort of depth to it. There was really no way for me to illustrate these scenes without exploring the lighting of these scenes. And they end up becoming more complicated visually than some of the illustrations in the earlier book. That's fascinating because the the word that I've got down here is layered. How exactly is the artwork rendered? Is it all digital? The art all starts on paper. Well, first I sketch the scenes on paper to figure out what I want to illustrate. Then I'll move on to making more polished sketches in Photoshop on my computer. When it comes to the finished artwork that you see in the book, I paint shapes on paper with black ink. I do the hand lettering. So I end up with all these little shapes that I draw and paint on paper. And then I scan those into my computer and I start layering them together to come back to that word layering. I layer them over top of each other. And then I might use Photoshop to add a few little extra details. The lighting is a little tricky, so it's helpful to use Photoshop to get those gradations just right. So it's a mixture of traditional media and digital media. I wanted to talk a little bit about how illustration and text work. You've got a number of pages where you cut through the page with the illustration and it looks really dynamic. So Mm -hmm. how did that work between you and the designer and how the manuscript is laid out? It's not easy. I made my life a little more harder than it needed to be doing this type of thing where the art interacts with the text so much. There's this rule I didn't know about until I started working on The Wild Robot, which is that the last page of any chapter in the book has to have at least five lines of text on it. So think about that. That means if I have a chapter that ends with a page where there's only three lines of text, I have to either get rid of three lines of text to get rid of that little section or add two lines of text to get to that five lines of text that is required for the last page of the chapter. So that's a challenge in itself. Add on top of that illustrations like this that go through the text and force the text to do all sorts of funny things. That ends up making all sorts of more awkward situations at the end of the chapter. And I'll tell you, it's been such a pain. But as my editor says, it's worth the effort because the effect is is really satisfying. To have the art play with a text like this is really fun and interesting. I love the use of a diagonal in a book like this because it's dynamic. In this scene in particular, yeah, because of these giant schools of fish, they seem to all be communicating in some way, turning and twisting at the same time. And and I wanted to try to capture a little bit of that sense of these fish are really almost like a single organism winding through the water. The little vignette. Sometimes I don't get the attention as much when people are talking about and critiquing a book, but they're so important. There's, I think there's one of the jellyfish, which is just... Amazing. Yeah, I love nature. The truth is, I after what we call high school, when I was applying to colleges, universities, my plan was to go to a college to study art, but I didn't know if I was good enough to get into a decent art college. And so my backup plan was actually to study zoology. I grew up watching David Attenborough, like most people, and I just was so in love with those documentaries. So when I have opportunities like this to illustrate an animal, maybe one that kids aren't as familiar with, especially. And it's not perfectly anatomically correct, but I want to really capture the feeling of that animal, the sort of sense of the tentacles and of the kind of the lighting, because the light filters through jellyfish in really interesting ways. And so I wanted to at least attempt to capture what those creatures look like. Just take a look at the double page spread that is a single illustration here and the effect that has when you turn the page, there's a lot of space. We've got a very tiny thing down here in yeah. the bottom. Interesting how that affects the pacing of a story. 
I come from that background of making picture books and thinking about compositions. And this is not a picture book. Now, this novel really has to work on its own. People need to be able to read the text and get everything they need from the text alone. But if you pick up the book and you're going to see these illustrations, I want those illustrations to add to the experience. And so in this case, I was really trying to give a sense of scale. Roz is this, now she's not a huge robot. She's probably about the size of a person, but here she is on the seafloor somewhere in the ocean. And I just wanted to give a little hint of a sense of scale, right? There's this big ocean and suddenly this robot who's taken up so much space in our minds is suddenly she looks awfully tiny. At this moment, Roz feels alone. It was a dark, mysterious place. And so I wanted to capture that sense of mystery, that sense of openness and darkness. But then she's got this shaft of light beaming out from her headlights, you know, and it's boom, here's Roz. She's here. She's ready. She's on the march. They were talking about putting text over the art here, maybe white text over the black space. And I immediately shot that down because I thought, no, this is a moment. This is the first time we've seen this character in this kind of environment. And I just want to take a little breather, just a little moment for us all to just pause and, and appreciate what's happening here. Pictures are reflective spaces. The typical last question is whether the wild robot is going to come out and play again in the future. I have some ideas. Is This story, this series is different than other series. Some series, the whole big overarching story is figured out ahead of time. And for me, I'm uh, writing these as more episodes. I'm pretty confident there'll be another Wild Robot story eventually. Whether it's the one that's in my mind right now or something else is yet to be seen. Will you be working on picture books in between? Is that something that you can do? Can you move from picture book to novel and be working on two projects at the same time? I love just being able to focus on one project at a time. And usually there's a good chunk in the middle of a project where I'm just focused on that one particular book. But at the beginning of the project or the end of the project, I'm usually transitioning as one is winding down, I'm gearing up for the next one. Right now I'm working on a picture book and it's it's actually a wild robot picture book, to be honest with you, because I love this world so much and all the interior illustrations are black and white that I thought it might be nice to just let myself have some fun with full color, richly illustrated scenes, kind of a retelling of the first book we'll get a kind of a different glimpse into Roz's life and some of the other characters. And I really just wanted to show Roz in this wild environment, slowly adapting and changing and the seasons and all the migrating animals, but it's full color. And so I think that'll probably be my next book that comes out. And then after that, you know. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon in the reading corner. It's been great to talk to you, Peter. This has been fun. Thank you.